You're listening to audio from Highland Baptist Church in Waco, Texas. To find out more about Highland, go to www.hbcwaco.org. Amen. You can be seated and good morning, 10 o'clock family. It's good to see all of you here today. You're going to need hope this semester. You're going to need some hope in these, in these coming months. You're going to need hope just as much as you need oxygen. You're going to need hope just as much as you need water. You're going to need hope as much as you need Chick-fil-A. You may call it daily bread. I call it my, my daily Chick-fil-A. And if your hope is tied to anything that can be taken, or if your hope is tied to anything that can be lost, it's actually not hope. It's just a wish. So let me give you a working definition this morning of, of what hope is. And I, I hope that you'll write this down or maybe even memorize it or write it in the back of your Bible because this is a working biblical definition of hope. Hope is a certainty that God is at work. He is with me. I made this in first person for you to own, for you to take with you today. Hope is a certainty that God is at work. He is with me and his word is true. His promises for us are set. You know, a, a wish gives wonder. A wish says things like, is it going to work out? I hope that it does, question mark. A wish wonders, is it going to be okay? I hope that it does, question mark. Is there a purpose in this? Is anyone with me in this? That's a wish. A wish wonders, but biblical hope is certain. Biblical hope says it is going to work out. Biblical hope says it is going to be Okay, biblical hope says that there is a purpose in everything that happens in our lives and that God is always with us no matter what. So in this series of hope thirst that we come to, we continue today, we just started last week, we, we've named it this title because there's a lot of thirst that we have in the world today for hope and we often wrongly chase after hope in hopeless things. We look for hope in money, or in relationships, or in, in possessions, and all those things can be good. I mean, we, you need money. I'm not sure if you've figured this out yet. College freshman, I'll give you a little pro tip for the rest of your life. You're going to need money. And I love relationships. People are awesome. And so I'm not saying that there's nothing good at all about money or, or people. And possessions, I, I like the roof over my, my head at night. I like my Kia. It, it, it works for me. And so all of these things are, aren't bad, but if we have tried to find our hope in money, or our hope in people, our hope in relationships, or our hope in possessions, none of those things is designed to actually give us hope. So the next four weeks, what we're going to do, walking through this series together, we're going to see what God says about hope and where it can truly, permanently be found. So let's go to what I think is the richest, deepest most profound book in the New Testament. You probably already know what it is, the book of Romans. Let's go to Romans chapter five together. I hope you have your copy of God's word today or can go to your device or if you forgot your device and a copy of God's word, someone next to you, I'm certain, will be glad to share with you today. Let's go to Romans chapter five. Romans is the New Testament. You got the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. You got Acts. Then you got Paul's letter to the church at Rome or as we know it, Romans be in Romans chapter five, just the first five verses of this chapter. It's such a rich chapter, such a rich book. 
Romans chapter 5, we'll begin in verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope, there's our operative word today, of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces, here's the word again, hope. And hope, there it is again, does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Don't close your Bible. Paul begins in verse 1 with that word, therefore, which means he's building on a previous thing that he has said. He is about to launch into something new here in chapter 5. But before he launches into chapter 5, he wants to make sure that we do not forget what has already been said. And so Paul had made certain to us in chapter 4 that we, as Christ followers, that we now know that Jesus has made everything right between God and his people. And even earlier than that, in Romans chapter 1, 2, and 3, he makes this compelling case that we're all guilty people. We're, we're a league of guilty people. And then tells us very clearly in chapter 4 that now God is committed to us, even in our brokenness, even in our, in our lostness, and he's going to do something about that problem. God is faithfully devoted to clean up the mess that we made through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. So now he begins, therefore, since we have been justified by faith. If you're a note taker, you can write those three words down somewhere, either in your notes or uh, in the back of your Bible, or you know, if you have a pen with you and, and a journal or something like that, or ladies' lipstick, whatever you want to use, to like write these things down. And here's the three words I'd encourage you to write down. We are justified. And that, that's a big church word. I, I know it is. It's a big theological word. It's a word of the reformers from, from the 1600s. That, that whole thought of, of what does it mean to be justified. So let me take that, that big theological term of justification and kind of break it down for us to understand exactly what it looks like and how we live our lives today as believers. Here's what it means to be justified. It means that God ends the scorekeeping between himself and his people. God no longer keeps score. When I, when I say that, I mean God no longer keeps a, a long list of our sins. For those in Christ, God is no longer keeping a list of our sins. That was a great place to say amen. So I'm going to back it up just a little bit. And get, no, no, it's too late. No, don't do it now. Don't amen, amen me now. But back it up just a little bit. Let me give you an opportunity to like be really excited about that because that's good news. I know it's 10 o'clock. I know you haven't had a lot of cups of coffee yet. I know it's been a long week for some of you. So let me just rewind that a little bit. Say that to you one more time. For those of y'all who had it deep within your bones, but you couldn't say it, here it is. For those in Christ, God is no longer keeping a list of our sins. Yeah, yeah I, I knew you wanted to. That was still a C minus or so. That was okay. It's good that Jesus, that in Christ Jesus, God no longer keeps a list of our sins. I don't know about you because my list is long. My list is long. All the, all the sins, all the rebellion, all the pushing back against God. But for those in Christ, God is no longer keeping score. Justifying is what God does. God is in the business of justification, which sets us free, this is good news, from the treadmill of performance. He no longer keeps a record of our, our sins. 
He is no longer a scorekeeper between himself and his people. Because of that, justification means you can get off of the treadmill. It means you have nothing to prove to God or nothing to prove to yourself or nothing to prove to others. You don't have to spend the entirety of your life now trying to become worthy of blessing or, or worthy of reward or putting up a good front. You no longer have to be burdened to the slavery of earning. You don't have to be smart. You don't have to be beautiful. You don't have to be strong. You don't have to be successful. You don't have to be good. In fact, the Bible is very clear. The gospel really declares that God only justifies the weak and the ungodly. Those who are bad, and I think we all do that pretty well. So again, note takers, you can write this down. Christian, you are infinitely pardoned, eternally forgiven, and permanently justified. This is who you are in Christ because God is the justifier through the work of his son, Jesus Christ. For everyone who's in this room today or watching online today who is in Christ Jesus, here's what is true about you. You are infinitely pardoned. You're eternally forgiven. You're permanently justified. What does that mean? Forever pardoned, forever forgiven, forever justified. Now let me just ask you a, a practical application question. Does that truth, Christian, make you want to run to sin this afternoon? Does a truth like that make you want to push back on God, rebel against God, or does it make you want to know him more, to treasure him more, to adore him more? Every now and then I hear people say, Pastor, be careful that you preach too much on grace because if you preach too much on, on grace, people are going to run towards sin. See, my deal is I want to preach on it all the time so that we all run to Jesus. Grace is like this open gate and we understand grace and it opens up for us. We don't want to run back into the dirt, back into the mud, back into the filth that got us into a place where we needed rescue to begin with. Grace moves our hearts toward Jesus. So what's the reward then of no more scorekeeping? I hope your Bible's still open. What's the result then of being infinitely pardoned? What's the result or the fruit of being eternally forgiven and permanently justified? There is something here, Christian, that we now have. What is it that we now have? Verse one, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a gift. This is something that we get from the grace of God. We have peace. Now in the New Testament, the Bible identifies really two types of peace. When it comes to God, there's peace with God, and then there's the peace of God. Here in verse one, it's definitely peace with God. That's an external relationship that we have with God that we're no longer at war with him because Jesus has brokered the peace. So we're no longer at war with God. We have peace with God. It is something that Jesus has done for us outside of us. But prior to that, we were enemies of God. Romans chapter 3 tells us this. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us this. Other places in the New Testament says, says that we were enemies of God. So in other words, we don't come into this world like morally neutral. We don't come into this world indifferent toward God. When we came to this world, we wanted to be God ourselves. If you don't believe me, go up to the two-year-old classroom in the education building and, and tell me that you don't believe in original sin, right? Because what's the number one word in a two-year-old class? Mine. And that's just the teachers up there saying that. And the kids say, mine, that's mine. It's like the, the seagulls in Finding Nemo. Mine, mine, mine. We're all born with the desire to hold on to the reins of our own lives. So there's peace with God. There's also the peace 
of God. That's this internal sense or this internal condition that we are at rest with God. We're not wrestling with God for control over our lives. We're at rest in him. It's possessing that peace that Jesus secured for us at the cross. It's the peace that Paul talks about later on in Philippians chapter four, a peace that passes understanding or a peace that passes human comprehension. It is this peace that is beyond our understanding. It's a supernatural peace that we will never find in this world. 22, 2022 language is, 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 is a mind-blowing peace. It's that supernatural. It's beyond our ability to even understand. So this, this peace here that we see in verse one is actually peace with God, which is external. It is outside of us. It was done for us through Christ Jesus. But also the peace of God, of course, we see also in Philippians chapter four and later on in the Bible, it's an internal peace. But here we see, if you're note takers, you write this down, that peace with God, verse one, for the believer is permanent for eternity. Christian, you now have peace with God. Christian, you are no longer at war with God. Christian, Jesus has brokered the peace for you. And when you have peace with God, then you have the peace of God inside of you. So the peace with God for the believer, verse one, is permanent for eternity. It's fixed. It is established. It is, it is set. It will never change. It will not fluctuate. It's not true sometimes and untrue sometimes. See, this is, this is where hope is found. Hope is found in, in the certainty of things. And so this is the hope that we have, the promise that we have, the certainty that we have, that if you're in Christ Jesus, you have a peace with God that will last forever. You see, somewhere down the line, we made the word hope in the English language a cross-your-finger type of wish. I, I sure hope my team wins this weekend. I sure hope she likes me. Sure hope I pass my class. I sure hope that Britney Spears never has a duet with Elton John. You know, whatever it might be, I may be too late on that one. Whatever your hope might be, we've kind of crossed our fingers, think, oh, maybe that will, will happen. Maybe that won't ever happen. That's not biblical hope. Peace with God is this work done outside of us by the cross of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. Therefore, Christian, it is a work that you and I cannot undo, which means we are forever permanently in peace with God for all of eternity. That truth should satisfy our thirst for hope. We just made it through verse one. Let's get to verse two quickly. Through him who is Christ, we've also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. So it's like a key. It's like a fob. It's like a passcode. We now have access. We can open the door into grace. In fact, Christ is the key. Christ is the door. And we walk into this grace. Now look here. Grace is not something that you just pass by or walk through. I think Christians here in the West, we think that. We don't move on from grace. We need that grace from Jesus every day. Not just grace for salvation day. We need his grace for every day, which is why the Spirit of the Lord says here in verse 2, hope your Bible's open, we go into this grace in which we stand. Note takers, grace isn't the starting point alone, it's the standing point forever. We falsely think that it was Jesus' blood, sweat, and tears that got us into the kingdom, and somehow now it's our blood, sweat, and tears that keeps us in the kingdom. But that's not how it works. Don't, don't, don't think that you needed Jesus at the beginning, but you don't need him now. Church, we need him every day standing in that, in that grace. Don't start thinking, oh, I'm better now. 
Don't start thinking, well, I'm, I'm improved now all these years later. No, don't believe your own press. That somehow you needed Jesus back then, but you don't need his grace today. When attention shifts from Jesus and what he has done to, to me and what I must do, we begin to lose sight of grace. And we start saying things like, yes, grace, but. Or yes, grace, plus. Listen, sisters in Christ and brothers in Christ, don't let grace cease to amaze you. His grace is enough. It is Jesus plus nothing. So God's grace is not something that we move beyond or just kind of walk through. No, again, it says in verse two, we stand on it. We stay in the grace of God. Grace better always be underneath our feet, family. Because we're gonna need it every minute, every day, every breath. We never grow beyond grace. Second part of verse two, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We rejoice in the hope of God's Glory. The word there, glory, is the Greek word doxa. It means brilliance, or, or it means the brightness of. And so our hope is in God's brilliance. What Paul is saying here is our hope is not in our brilliance. Our hope is not in the brilliance that we somehow think we might could, could bring unto ourselves. It's like comparing ourselves to the sun, like the brilliance of Christ is like the sun. What, what is our lives like? Our lives are like a flickering flashlight with old Walmart batteries in it. Like we just can't, we can't produce that light. We don't compare it to the sun at all in the same way we see that our hope is in the brilliance of God, not in our own brilliance. In fact, one of the most hopeless places you can look for hope is in yourselves. And I say in our culture today, humanism, which is just at the forefront of, of, of social media and songs and marketing, is always telling you, look to yourself for hope. Scripture is coming to us today. You can write this down saying this, the only hope for ourselves is to give up hope in ourselves. I know me. I don't want to find hope within me. I can only find hope outside of me in Christ Jesus. When you're in despair, and maybe you're in despair today, you're never gonna find hope in you as peace-giving. But when you're in despair, you're at the end of your rope, when you find hope in Christ, all it does is bring peace. All it does is bring this, this comfort. So when we try to find hope in ourselves, it's like giving a drowning man swimming lessons. As, as they're drowning, as they're going under, and you yell out to them, kick a little harder. Do your arms like this. Just try a little better. There's no hope for someone who is drowning by trying to give them some self-improvement, or if someone's drowning, yelling out to them, they should have hope in themselves. No, when you're drowning, you're looking for hope outside of you. You're looking for a rescuer. You're looking for a savior. This is, this is the picture of, of the gospel. Do not look within yourself for hope. You'll be disappointed every single time. Look outside of yourself. Faith in the completed work of Jesus on the cross is the only place we will find hope. Do not hope in yourself. That's humanism, and it's powerless. Verses three and four. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces, here it is, hope. This is what I love about Paul. He's an earthly theologian. He is talking here about the real difficulties 
of life. And so he uses that word suffering there at the, at the top. Note takers, write this down. The road to hope is paved with some hurts. There's, there's four steps here. Do you see? We always want to get to hope quickly. But where does hope begin? It begins with suffering. And then it moves to endurance. And then it moves into character, what's happening inside of us. And then that character produces hope. There's four steps that get you to hope. But look where it begins. It begins with suffering. Or your Bible might use the term there, afflictions. Or if you have the King James Version, the version that Jesus used, it says tribulations there. The, the, the Greek word is thlipsis, which means this overwhelming external pressure. Like you're being pressed down. That, that's the word for affliction. That's the word for tribulation. That's the word for suffering. It's this economic pressure. It's this relationship pressure. It's this financial pressure. It's this school pressure. It's the society pressures. All these things are weighing down on you in this suffering. But that's the very first step to hope. Mom and dad, you may be here today at the end of your rope with your kids. Or because there's so many young people here today, you may be at the end of your rope with your parents. It may be a two-way street. You may be at the end of the rope with your, with your roommate after seven days. You may be at the end of your rope with, with, with a friend. You may be at the end of your rope with, with, with a boss or with a teacher or with a neighbor. You may be at the end of the rope with yourself and your addictions and your inadequacies and your pride and your failures. And Christian, listen, if you're in a place like that, at the end of your rope with yourself or with anybody else, when you're in a place like that, the only thing that will get you through is to realize that you live your life under this banner. It is finished. I mean, friends, the work has already been done for you. In Christ Jesus, God is not keeping score anymore. The war between you and God is over. Christ has brokered that peace. So we can, verse four, we can endure because this whole thing is not riding on our shoulders. Life for you is not riding on your own shoulders. And verse four, we now have the character of Christ that's being built up inside of us. And you know, Jesus, the one who knows a little bit about suffering and endurance. Here's what Tim Keller said in his incredible book, Romans 1 through 7. He says, the benefits of justification are not diminished by suffering. They are enlarged by it. The benefit of justification, that you don't have to strive anymore. You don't have to be first place anymore. You don't have to, to hide anymore. You don't have to prove yourself to yourself or prove yourself to God or prove yourself to others. That's the benefit of justification. It's not diminished by suffering. It's enlarged by suffering. You see, our hope in Christ, grounded in Christ, shines brightly, more brightly, in difficult days. His promise to you, Christian, that there's no longer scorekeeping between you and the Creator, you and God, that just seems more precious to us when we're at the end of our rope. Verse 5, and we're done. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. Your translation might say there, and hope does not disappoint. I mean, how many things in life disappoint us? We get disappointed when we're not picked, when we're not recognized, when we're not promoted, when we're not remembered. You know, the classic definition of disappointment is when expectations do not meet reality. 
And that gap in between is disappointment. I thought it was going to be this way. It's not. I thought they were going to be those type of people. They're not. I thought my family was going to look like this. It's not. I thought my kids would behave like this. They're not. I thought Baylor College, university, school was going to look like this. It looks like this. And that space in between is called disappointment. We get disappointed in our sports teams, our heroes, our grades. We get disappointed in our family and our friends. We get disappointed in our politicians, our pastors. But you know the number one thing? We get disappointed with ourselves. I would say the number one person who disappoints me is me. The way I react to things, the way I respond to things, sometimes not out loud, but in my heart. And Jesus would say, that's just as bad, Durham. That's my last name. He didn't call me that, but Durham. I'm not sure why. I explained to you what God calls me. <laughs> the number one person who disappoints me is me. But we see right here in this passage, and again, if, you, if you're taking notes, you can write this down. It's the last thing I have to say today. No one who has put hope in Christ is going to end up disappointed. Life may disappoint you. People around you may disappoint you. The experiences from life might disappoint you. If you're anything like me, you will disappoint yourself. But no one who has put hope in Christ is going to end up disappointed. Why is that? Because look where this hope is based. It's here in verse 5. It is based in God's love. It is God's love that has prompted this entire passage. It is God's love that has moved him to no longer keep score with us. It is God's love that drove this grace toward us, his love that compelled the possibility of you and I having peace with God so that we can have the peace of God. It is his love that launched this hope that we can now have. And let me be very transparent with you, friends. I can't preach verse five because my words escape the massive beauty and power of this verse. Because verse five speaks of God's love for us, not our love for God. And the love here is this personal, intimate love which God places on us. Look what it says in verse 5. And he pours it into our hearts. The original language there means it is filling up inside of us. It's a continual pouring. His love is just pouring on us, over us, in us through us, being distributed to others. He's pouring it into our hearts that literally fills us up with the love of God. And we even see here that God has an inside agent. Not a secret agent, but an inside agent. Who is that? The Holy Spirit. Who's just receiving this love. And here's the picture I have in my mind. The Holy Spirit in me, just receiving the love of God and then just splashing it all around my life. Like receiving buckets full of the love of God and just pouring it into my heart pouring into my thoughts toward others, pouring into the way I live my life, I set my calendar, I spend my money. The love of God just pouring into us. It's this love of God that anchors us to him forever. It's his unceasing love. It's his unchanging love just being poured into this. Let me say it plainly. This past week when you did not love God, God still loved you. This past week, when your affections were not set upon God, God's affections were set upon you. This past week, when you forgot about God, God did not forget you. So any hope 
that's tied to anything outside of Jesus is no hope at all. Would you stand with me, please? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the reminder today of this love. This is a perfect foundation for hope. Hope that you're always at work is a certainty. Hope that you're always with us is a certainty. Hope that you never leave us, you never forsake us, that, that is a certainty. Hope that your word to us is always true, that you're not a lying God. Your word to us is true, that's a certainty. We have built our lives upon it, we're banking on it. And that produces this hope in us. That as followers of Christ, you're not keeping score anymore. That long list of sins, that long list of addictions, that long list of rebellions. For those in Christ, you do not keep that list. So we can get off the treadmill. And we can be okay with being in last place. We can be okay not being the most successful person in town. Because we are eternally pardoned. Infinitely forgiven. Supremely loved. Jesus, you are our hope. Not hope is a thing, but hope is a person. Christ Jesus, you are our only hope. You're the only hope for this church. Jesus, you're the only hope for Waco. Jesus, you're the only hope for our nation. Jesus, you're the only hope for this world. Christ is our hope. We believe this, and as your people believe this, it makes us want to sing this as well. So God, accept our praise as we rejoicingly say, you are our hope.